Welcome to the latest installment of the Run to Daylight podcast. Uh, I'm your host, as always, Todd from PA, Todd Burrows. Now going by at Best Ball NFL, I'm very happy to be joined today by at Dwayne McFarland of Pro Football Focus and the FF Hustle podcast, which is, to be fair, my new crush, right? And uh, I've I've gushed on Twitter and now I, I've gushed to Dwayne in the back room and I will try not to embarrass myself in that way during the podcast. Um, I am also thankful for my friends over at the FFPC. You can go to myffpc.com and sign up for an account. I am on my way to a hundred of the 125 best balls between solo and with some partners. Um, very, very excited about that setup with two teams advancing out of every league and then three teams advancing out of every uh, group during the playoffs. I think it is a completely different dynamic which sets up for different strategies, which I've talked about in other podcasts. Maybe Dwayne and I will touch on it as well. You can go to myffpc.com, sign up for an account. There's only 34% uh, left. This tournament, if you're waiting to the end until you have three preseason games and all the information, you're going to miss out. Go and join. And now it's Dwayne time. Hi, Dwayne. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. I appreciate you having me on, Todd, and and thanks for all the the kind words. I love coming on podcasts with people that play a lot of fantasy football, um, and you're certainly one of those, and you play in a lot of high-stakes leagues with a lot of really sharp players, and I think there's so much value that comes from getting to engage with people like that, um, and it's not always something you can just measure, right? It's almost like an intangible for people that have done this over the years, and I try to pride myself in having that balance of analysis, but also drafting a lot and bringing that edge to players. So I'm super excited to be on with you. Yeah, I, uh, I it's kind of like being an athlete, I find, right? When you're doing regular drafting, you're in shape. And, and you feel like when you're on the draft board, you have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen, what might come your way, how to adjust, to, to be able to plan three, like chess, three, four, five, six, rounds in the future when you stop drafting you can quickly get out of shape just like an athlete do you look at it the same way Dwayne yeah absolutely I find that my first few drafts are probably just like um like going back to high school and being (laughs) in athletics you know your first few reps you know the muscle memory you're trying to get it to come back but what I love about drafting is um it really makes you have to take a stance, right? And where are your convictions? Because when you're on the clock, especially, you know, and it's all relative, right? From a stake standpoint of, you know, how big your bankroll is versus how much you're putting in on each entry. But once you're truly on the clock in some sort of a sort of a league where you're paying something, whether it's a dollar or $300, I really don't care. Your convictions are put to a test, right? And, and when I get to the moment of I'm not freezing, I feel really strong about, you know, my choices and I can make them in real time. Um, and to your point, when I make a decision, I'm automatically thinking two and three rounds ahead right from there based on the way my roster construction is working. That's when I know I'm starting to like get into that, that, that peak season shape, right? I'm really ready for action. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do for a living? I heard you mention on a recent pod that you were a sales rep. I, that was my old gig for 30 years. Um, and how long have you been giving out content and how did you, you know, it all come about and, and how did you meet Brian? You know, just give us uh, the five, sure. 10 minute version of the Dwayne McFarland story. 
Yeah. So my actual degree in college is in kinesiology. So my, you know, what I was planning to do was be a coach um, out of college. And then I graduated from college um, in December. And so I had some offers for after doing student teaching for where I could go actually get a job, you know, the next year, but it was going to be the next August. So I basically had, you know, six, seven, eight months, I had to do something. Um, and so I got into sales. <laughs> I actually started working in investment services and man, things just really took off. Uh, and it might not have been necessarily the right choice at the time, but like I was, I just started making really good money. And then I was like, well, how am I going to go be a coach now? I mean, we're already making this much money and um, especially with a family. Yeah. And so, and we were getting prepared to have a family at that point. And so I, and I was, I enjoyed sales. I really did. So I did follow that path for a while. I went into pharmaceutical sales after that. Then I went over into med device sales. Um, and eventually I was a regional manager um, where I managed about five or six states, you know, 15 reps or so and several clinicians. I could and, see you uh, being really good at that. Oh, you thank know, you. I was terrible. My first year as a manager. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> everyone is. But, you know, sales is a lot of what you do on the podcast. And the way you present information is very similar to how you would do a sales pitch, right? It's not about, you know, histrionics and buy my stuff. It's about making the case for why they should want to do it and right. why you like it. And um, yeah, so I, 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 I can think, see I think the background of that. teaching helped me a lot with that as well. Absolutely. Uh, because, uh, you know, something I picked up early on in my you know, as I was studying to become a teacher, you know, and a coach was just that how, you know, it's even further along the day it's progressed so much, but just all of the research, I was fascinated by how different people learn differently, right? Some, some learn by hearing, some learn by seeing a lot of people have to learn by doing. So those are things we try to incorporate like across the podcast. Okay. How do we help lay out the case in a way that different people can understand it? You know, how do we convey information through, through different, um, you know, different types of uh, ways of doing it just so that we can really try to reach, you know, that broader audience. Um, but after sales, you know, I was always into data, always into analysis. Like back in the day when I was a young kid playing like uh, video games, this is giving away my age some, but like the, you know, if you played tech mobile back in the day, it didn't track your season, you know, like I didn't have season stats. It was just like, you know, you had what, he, what happened for each game. You know, and same thing in all the baseball games. And I remember my parents thinking I was nuts because, like, I would literally write down all the stats for all my players after each game. So I could add them up and be like, oh, here's where my players are for, like, the season. And eventually, you know, the video games took care of that for me. But I've always been into stats. I've always been in, you know, to data, trying to figure out is there an edge there. And so ultimately, uh, in my sales job, I had to negotiate with a really large company. It's called Novation back in the day, but they basically represent about half of the hospitals in the United States. And they write these national contracts with all these big suppliers. And I was negotiating with them on some things. And I ran into a guy while I was negotiating that we became pretty good buddies. He was like, hey, we're starting this analytics department. You're like really into numbers. I know you don't want to travel as much as you used to. We need somebody with a sales background to help us really help you know build out these tools for our sales teams, as well as for the hospitals so they can better negotiate with people like Man, you. Perfect for you. Yeah. And so, man, it Perfect took off from there. I went in as a product manager, eventually worked up my way to associate vice president over um, basically all of the supply chain data and analytics solutions. Learned a lot about product management, learned a lot more about data, about analytics. So it was a perfect fit. So I've been in healthcare all the way up until now. Um, I took a sabbatical two years ago. 
Um, you know, something my wife and I had kind of planned out and we wanted to do it before my oldest son went to college. That's where the Texas Tech comes from. I didn't go there, but my, my dollars go there, Todd. Um, so last part of the story, um, when I took that time off, it gave me time to write, you know, because I know the other part of this question is, you know, when did I really start producing content? My first content was honestly probably around 23 years old. I, w- I did IDP work way back in the day for Draft Sharks. I did a season of that. And I wrote some different things for them as well. Um, I think I'm one of the first people that wrote about running back by committee, but I called it uh, what I called it the situational running back. I didn't have a good enough, like, you know, tagline for it. Um, but it was all about um, Tommy Vardell and, and Barry Sanders. And I was laying out these examples of Leroy Horde. And I can't remember who it was. Uh, who was the Robert back Smith. Out of a, Robert Smith out of Ohio State. Yeah. So I was like writing. I wrote a big article you know, about that. And that's ultimately what got me the job at Draft Sharks at the time. And the article did really Le- Leroy well. Horde was a great late round pick in, uh, in drafts back then. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, he would score 10, 12 touchdowns. <laughs> so, um, and, so and get the third down work. Yeah, exactly. Back before we really were thinking so much about a lot of those things because we didn't yep. always have all the data. So anyway, that, that year and a half or two years ago, when I took that sabbatical, it really gave me time to write. And so I started writing, eventually wrote for football guys and established the run. Then I started working with Pro Football Focus. And so the announcement that I'm here like today is next Thursday, I'm going full time with Pro Football Focus. So I'll be 100 percent focused on fantasy football content, um, whether that means writing or just trying to figure out, hey, what are the things that we need to do to make the product better? And so I'm super is, excited. Is that about something it. I should congratulate you for? Or I mean, I've heard the pay for some of these analysts. Um, no, I'm teasing. Congratulations. Um, it couldn't have happened to a better guy. And I'm sure that you're going to bring a lot of positive impact to, to pro football focus. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I did, you know, take a, a pay cut to take this role. But what I would say is I think we're pushing the boundaries on what good content creators can make in the industry. So any way that I can help, you know, push on that, you know, I'm trying to in pro football focus. I've worked with them for a year and they've been amazing to me. Everything, you know, me is just someone doing one article for them a week. Now I did a bunch of preseason work for them last year, but the way I've been treated by them, um, the way they've supported me, um, the data that they've helped give me access to how they've tried to make my life easier as a content creator. Like it goes a long way with me. Like they have a really strong um, internal bond across their team. Everybody is really rooting for one another. They have a really good culture. And um, so I'm, I'm 100% bought into that. And I'm a firm believer in, you know what, go do what you love. You know, I've, I've had jobs, I've had jobs, make, I've had jobs making $250,000, $300,000 a year. And I've been very thankful for those jobs, but they, that's not necessarily where my happiness comes from. You know what I mean? And so I'm, I'm thankful to have the opportunity that I have to go do what I'm doing. And I just want to go crush it. I think there's so much that can be done using the data that they have. And I'm just super excited about it. I, I couldn't be any more excited for you or Pro Football Focus. Um, that is fabulous. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, you, your, you know, you are a high stakes guy. Um, can you tell us what your percentage of season, because on the pod, you seem to talk more about season long than best ball. Yeah. Um, but your own personal playing, um, give us an idea of where we can find you in the draft rooms and what, what you're playing. Yeah, FFPC is my primary format, um, and I love Me the, too. The, the Football Guys Players Championship. And the reason I love FFPC is I, 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 I truly believe that it is the format 
that provides you with the most flexibility as far as the way you want to develop your strategy throughout a draft, because you've got tight end premium, you can flex a tight end, you can flex, it's double flex, right? So you have to have a deep roster too. You can't just, you know, have a good roster up top. You've got to be able to draft for depth. You've got to be able to draft for upside. You've got to be able to draft for who are the players that are going to carry you early in the season until your upside hits. Um, But I just love the fact that you can pivot, right? I, I could start three, tight ends if I want, if that's the value people choose to leave for me. Um, I could I could start four running backs. I could start four receivers, some combination of those things. I just feel there's there's a lot more from a flexibility standpoint and a strategy standpoint of, of having multiple paths to constructing really strong rosters. And th- I love that one, format. That's one, just one, thing I, one thing I, I just want to jump in on there is one of the most underrated parts of the FFPC scoring system. People mention two flex, but that second flex comes at the um, by taking wide receiver down from three to two. And to me, that's the key, right? Mm-hmm. That is because everyone's used to have to drafting three wide receivers. And it does when you're when you're playing the FFPC against people who don't play it all the time, I think that a lot of people overlook that, Dwayne. Yeah. And I think I love NFFC as well. Like, I love their format as well. There are a lot of really good uh, high stakes and mid stakes leagues out there. There's more and more every year. I think we're kind of, thank God, past the days of, of folks not being able to pay out, knock on wood, because of the bar that the FFPC has set and the way they handle their cash and, you know, the securing the winnings. So people don't have to deal with things like what happened with the AFFL way back in the day. Um, but yeah, I'm like totally both. with you. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you do, um, the, the NFFC, like that type, that style of format and you have to start three wide receivers and it's one flex, it really, it really dictates a lot or even underdog, right. When you're playing, you know, best ball, it, it really kind of dictates like it limits. You notice, yeah. And especially if you're in a fast draft, like on underdog, underdog where people have 30 seconds, if you'll notice people just pretty much follow ADP. I mean, that's literally what's happening. There's very few picks that are not just going around ADP. So whatever the latest trend is, essentially just everyone follows it. It's just a herd mentality, um, which you which can, is great you can for use. Me. You can use to your advantage. You don't it's in those situations. You should definitely be anti ADP, right? You should not be an ADP slave when you know that most drafts are going to go that way. But what I love about FFPC is I'm just much less likely to ever feel trapped. I feel like there's always a door open to me that other people are leaving open, um, especially if they just want to force one strategy. You know, I got to do this strategy every time. I don't think that's a good strategy in the FFPC. I think it's 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 the format where it's the least valuable going in saying I've got to use a certain strategy. Um, NFFC, I think you could make a bigger argument for why you would want to do zero RB or anchor RB. Um, but I think as you look at the different formats, that changes. Yeah, and when you when you draft a lot, you have plenty of opportunity to do all those strategies, right? Yep. In the FFPC, I mean, based on where the value falls, and I'm a I'm a huge believer in rock solid roster construction, mixing up your exposure, and taking value when you get it. I mean, I uh, you know uh, we're going to get to a couple things that I I really want to discuss, but in general. <clears throat> Someone asked me on one of the discords just now, um, you know, do I reach for players more out of the 11 or 12 spot because so long between picks? And I was like, no, no, I want to see who fell to me 
the one thing I want to do from the 11 spot is look at who the 12 has so I can get two guys that I want on the turn. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, but back to season long versus best yeah. ball, what is your percentage of each? Yeah, so my best ball is growing now. Um, so like two years ago when we still had draft, like I had quite a bit. But this year I'm at 35 teams and, um, you know, underdog as far as um, I can't even remember the main one. Not 35 the, not the, FFPC? No, 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 no. On underdog. I'm up okay. to 35 there. But I'll curtail my my best ball. So those are the $25 teams. And I think I have yep. like 10 of the puppy teams. Um, but I'll curtail that over the next couple of weeks and I'll really just focus on season long. Um, so traditionally, you know, I'm probably 70% season long, 30% best ball. That's still the way it's going to be from a dollars invested, Todd. What from a just pure number of teams, I'll have more best ball teams than I will season long. Um, but as far as where my dollars are being in invested, it'll be about 70% in season long, 30% um, in best ball. So that opens up a question because I, I built my brand over the last five years with best ball, not because I wasn't good at season long, but I always just loved to draft and best ball was, you know, A, there wasn't a lot of people doing content for it when I started and B, I just love to freaking draft. Right. And, you know, best <laughs> yeah. ball. Uh, allows you to, you know, I've averaged between two and 300 a year for four or five years. Got back into season long last year. Um, and, the, and the weakest part of my game is fab. Do you have a couple tips for me and for um, some of the other people out there on fab? Yeah, and I think it depends on your team, right? Um, but there's certain things I'm, I'm definitely looking for. Um, so, I mean, there's a couple of things we could talk about this from a time management standpoint. One, because if you're going to draft a lot right. of these teams, you have, I mean, to how have many do you do? Do you do 60, 70, 50, no, 30? Usually, usually, you know, I'll do 30 somewhere in 25. That's a lot. 30, I did that last year. I wanted to kill myself because yeah, I like it, to play DFS too. So, so me too. So what I, what I do is as the season goes, I start, I, I reprioritize every week really like the teams that I know I need to focus on all the way down to the teams I'm going to focus the least on. So once you get to week six, you know, you've, you're probably, if you're drafting 30 teams, like, like me, hopefully you've got 15, you still really like five that you love. And then you may have seven or eight. You're like, ah, I got a chance. And then you have some that you're like, I'm going to get to them, but I'm going to get to them when my brain is basically like doesn't have as much energy left. So if I make a mistake there or if I miss something based on a cutoff, okay, great. So you have to prioritize your time, but you have to really, you have to have a process around it, you know? So you've got for the way I look at it, a lot of the work I do for pro football focus and the utilization report and those sort of things basically set me up where I'm ready for, you know, handling, you know, my fab dollars, but I'm very aggressive in fab early in the season um, especially on rosters where I know I've drafted a certain way and I'm like, you know, maybe RB2 for whatever reason, I'm like, it's really shaky. I'll be aggressive right out of the gate. A lot of it does come back to roster construction. If there are young receivers that break out early um, that for whatever reason got dropped or have high draft capital, I'm all over it. So Justin Jefferson, I think I picked up on 50% of my teams last year. Um, wow. right out of the gate after week two, Chase Claypool. I want to say I added a 40 30 or 40% of my teams, T Higgins, probably around half of my teams. So, I mean, I added three, 
players that were viable that I could use. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. In fact, those guys doing that last year, why everybody's going freaking bananas over drafting rookie wide receivers this year, probably too high, right? In some cases, maybe in some cases not. We can get into that later. It was okay so, until recently. You know, oh Rashad, Rashad Bateman made that one catch uh, in, uh, in, in training camp and has gone up four rounds. Rondell Moore, you know. And what's frustrating Marshall, is like how's Terrace Marshall like a pick one twenty or something like that now? I'm like I oh, love man. Terrace Marshall, but I, I like him too. a lot better in the in the fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth exactly. round. <laughs> and there's a lot of good content coming out from people, right? Around how drafting, you know, upside players late in your season give you the chance to win the big money. So the problem is I think there's context involved with everything and what people typically will do, especially if you don't spend a ton of, if you go read those articles, they're actually pretty nuanced and the authors get the authors give you, here's when you deploy it. Here's how you think about it. It's not just, you got to deploy this strategy, but I think it gets into the Twitter echo chamber and all people hear is draft rookie wide receivers sooner. And then all of a sudden what we just saw happen is what happens. But for me, that just means I need a counter strategy at that moment. Like, how am I going to handle these receivers? I, I can't just continue to reach for them like these other players are doing. I've got to have a different strategy because there's, especially in a huge tournament, there's going to be thousands and thousands of people that use the exact same strategy. So I've got to be contrarian to that to some extent. Yeah, I, I think that um, one of my favorite things to do is um, – and it goes back to what we were talking about pre-show, about taking in information but not being pushed by it. And we'll get into that more. But yeah. in general, you know, being contrarian to me isn't taking some weird guy no one's ever heard of. Being contrarian is seeing where I, I always compare it to Wiley Coyote. I did an article for Diehards a couple of years ago. You know, don't be like Wiley Coyote, who's so eager to catch the roadrunner that he runs himself off of the cliff. Um, you know, so that's, a that's lot a of these. That's a great analogy. That's a great <laughs> analogy. I may, I may borrow that from you. I will totally give you feel, credit. Feel that free. That's a great analogy. Feel free. Uh, I even put in the pictures of Wiley, you know, uh, <laughs> looking down. And, um, you know, I think that's how I ended the article. Don't be like this. Um, but, um, you know, there's always, you know, like last year, it, it was really, and it, sometimes it's really smart guys in the FFPC, uh, like you saw Miles Sanders and CEH going way beyond. Um, and it ties into why I like you so much. I feel like you're good for grounding me. Not as, well, I got to do everything that Dwayne does, or I, I have to agree with everything Dwayne says. But tell us about your process for projections, because what I like about it is, A, um, the way you give out the information and be, you know, you don't have any ego about it. You're kind of remind me of myself in that, like, I know I'm going to be wrong a certain amount of the time. So there's no need to get the weapons out. Uh, but take us through your, um, your projections. One of the things I really like is that you incorporate the team news and you're as likely to spend time finding out information um, with the coaches as you are to strictly looking at numbers. Right. Yeah. So, you know, learning how to do this. So this goes back to my comment earlier about when I played tech mobile <laughs> and gathering all this information. I mean, I, that was the first thing that drew me into fantasy football 
was doing projections. And I will tell you out of the gate, I was terrible at them because I was basically Wiley Coyote. I, I had, I had bright starry eyed vision around everything and everything was, everything was best case scenario <clears throat> in my projections. They weren't very good. I still did okay in fantasy football, but I've really learned, you know, so much over the years. And that's why I think it's kind of funny now to hear this new narrative out there that everything's about upside and people trying to position it as, and I, I, and heard I do your believe, rant this, I do I heard believe your rant this week on that. I, I that believe in upside, but let's not repackage it in this packaging that it's this new mathematical, you know, I'm super smart kind of thing. Everybody probably is listening to this show right now. And if you've played fantasy football for any length of time, you've had two or three, you know, people in your league that you know what they're going to do. They're going to draft every young guy. This is not new. This has been going on forever. So that's my, that's the part of it that gives me angst is people it's getting repositioned. Not, not by everyone. There's some people doing a really good job of writing about it. Like Jack Miller. I think Pat Corrine does a really good job of writing about it and balancing it. Um, I think Michael Leone does a good job about the way that he presents the information and writes about it. Uh, Sean Siegel, obviously freaking brilliant. Ben Gretsch, they do a very balanced job around it and the way they talk about upside. But then there are a lot of folks, again, they don't get all that context and they just run with it. And, and so that, that's where I get angst. I'm like, look, this is nothing new. We've been seeing this forever. People that just <laughs> want to draft all the young players. And guess what? Every once in a while, those go ahead, teams go ahead have fun. But it's not like it always works. So, yeah, when I think about projections, you know, I've been on a journey for basically 20 years now. Um, and every year I'm, I'm, I'm always looking at my process. I'm looking at what worked. I'm looking at what did I hit on? What did I miss on? Knowing, you know, that some percentage of this, right, is still going to be luck. Like just, you know, shit happens. You know, Todd, sorry. Can't, maybe I can't say that word on here, but stuff happens. I, I, um, <laughs> I am personally deeply offended and, uh, okay. you know. Like uh, I'm cutting it off right now. I, 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 I won't have any of that shit on my show. <laughs> so what I would say about projections, um, you know, I think the thing I love about doing projections, even more than just coming up with the number that you're going to give to the player, and I'll talk about that more in a minute, is the the process of the research gives you such a good feel for everything that's going on with the team, with the player, with the coaches, with the roster construction. You're immersing yourself in all that. So you're for, you're forcing yourself to take in all the elements of the equation. And I think that's why I'm a bit resistant to any of these one size fits all kind of analyses that I see come out is because I do believe football, it's a very nuanced thing. There are a lot of different things going into the equation. Now that doesn't necessarily mean just because you know, all those is going to make your projections super accurate. It will make them better, right? But we're still going to be wrong some sense of the time, but the way I approach uh, projections and I'll just throw this out there. If you guys are inter interested in it, you can go look. If you just Google Dwayne McFarlane, Matt Waldman, RSP, I did an article on this two years ago. It's kind of an evergreen article, like how I handle projections, how it's evolved over time. I've even evolved it since this article. I got to write probably, that down. Yeah, I need to update it probably. But yeah, it's it's on Matt Waldman's site. Matt's been awesome to me. Matt's taught me a ton about player evaluation. Um, and I've taken a lot of that right into my process. But I'll give you the the high level, the way I look at, you know, doing projections. Number one, I start at a high level. I understand what league trends are, right? Then the next thing I'm going down to are teams and I'm looking at um, 
you know, a lot of different things. But, you know, is this going to be a good team? Is it going to be a bad team? Is it going to be an okay team? And then based on that, we've got historical tendencies for a lot of these coaches. Now you have to take things into context that they have a good quarterback, a bad quarterback. Well, what was the construct of their team in those years? Um, but essentially all those things at the top level start to fold into where now I'm saying, okay, I think this team's going to pass this much. They're going to run this much. Here's what I think they're, are they a fast tempo team? Are they a slow tempo team? And you got to take context on all that. If they trailed all the time, most of those teams are going to run a lot of plays, but you got to know is what do they look like in a neutral, neutral, neutral rate? What do they look like, you know, in a leading rate, a lot of great work out there. Like, uh, you know, a bunch of the stuff over to establish the run, you know, have folks like Pat Foreman have done a lot of great work around that. I've learned from him. Absolutely. But if, if I think about the projection process, I think about it like a funnel, Todd. So at the top, I've got team volume. Then the next thing I've got, you know, so team volume is a number of plays. Then I've got pass attempts or dropbacks minus sacks and scrambles. That equals pass attempts. And then I've got true rushing attempts. Obviously, your scrambles convert to rushing attempts in the end. Then I got player utilization and efficiency. Um, and then that ultimately equals my projections, but there are things impacting all of these things. So like coaching tendencies hit team volume, the quarterback play hits team volume, uh, the coaching tendencies, uh, dictate, you know, pass run splits in certain scenarios. Um, and then, you know, you have roster construction. What does, how is this team built? That's my big thing with CD Lamb right now. I love him, but there's also Michael Gallup and Amari Cooper. Um, you know, if you guys hear these birds chirping outside my window, it's because these Carolina wrens were like, just like born in my garage and it's funny i think it's really hard for them to learn how to fly because like they're like only have so much room they're hitting a ceiling or they're hitting a floor and that's the way i think about cd lamb like he wants to ascend and he's got a he's a great talent but like there's a there's a ceiling there just based on the fact that you've got to feed michael gallup amari cooper blake jarwin's going to be involved ezekiel elliott's paid a lot of money they still have a decent offensive line there's a lot of ways right that amari cooper last night i was in a draft where he went in the second round like he went at round two, pick 10. Like I like him. I I mean, sorry, CD lamb went at round two, pick 10. I like CD lamb, but I'd rather have him at round three, pick seven or eight. That's where I think, you know, his real, that's where the intersection hits for me of where he's a good value. Um, so just real quick on the projection stuff, then there's the player talent and fit, right? And that fits into the coaching scheme and the efficiency. Um, so it's really all of these things coming together. And again, you can go check that out and you can read the article. I try to lay it out like in, in my exact uh, process and how I follow it. But in the end, like I said, what I get out of that is, is the conviction right around what I'm, um, how I'm projecting these players. Then ultimately what that equals is I care more about tiers than I care about my projection because the way I project each player I do a spectrum for each one. I call it the projection spectrum. I used to write this article for football guys. I'm going to do some for PFF this year. But I truly look at how do you build a floor and how do you build a realistic upside? And then what's the mean projection for the player? So typically when you hear me on my pod talk about a projection, I'm talking about the mean. But I also look at what's the upside and the downside of the player. And then that helps me formulate what a tier looks like. It also helps me determine at different points in draft Am I over heavy on floor players? Am I over heavy on upside players? Because I really want to build a mix of those things into my team because over the course of a season and season long, I believe that helps give me an advantage in the way that I'm building my roster and the way that I'm able to handle, you know, my weekly lineup decisions. 
So a couple things off of that, um, and I'll, I'll get to a couple of them based, I'll, I'll mix some of them into the question. Um, you know, as far as the people out there pushing, um, I'll say an agenda, right, on upside, you know, there's some people who want to win fantasy football leagues, and there's some people who want to be Twitter famous. And just like you mentioned floor and ceiling, each human being has that floor and ceiling, right? Like how much do you want to win versus how much do you want to come up with something that becomes part of the vernacular? And I think some people have used upside as a way to become more famous and to advance their careers. Um, and, 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 you know, that the, the, there's an element of that. As far as I'm concerned, if you liked Wiley Coyote, I've got another one for you. I call it risk, right? And I always say that risk to me is like a mixed drink, right? If you have too much alcohol in a drink, it's almost undrinkable, right? And you get drunk too quick and you have a shitty night. Yeah. If you don't have enough alcohol in the drink, you don't want to drink it either. And you end up, you know, just the drink just ends up sitting there. I, I, I look at risk like that. I want it to be every one of my teams. I look at it on a team basis and, and an overall exposure basis. I want upside, but I also want floor. Um, and if, so you don't want a toxic drink, but you don't want a bland drink. <laughs> exactly. I want, I want a really nice mixed drink. I, I need enough upside to win, but I, I don't want to have so much upside that because upside comes with downside a lot of times, right? If not, you wouldn't be, you know, you're, it's your first and second round picks who give you both. Maybe you get, and then from there, you're, you start losing one or the other, right? Third round Keenan Allen, you're giving up a little ceiling, but you're getting an amazing floor, right? So when I'm in the ninth round and Marquise Brown and Jarvis Landry are on the clock, well, I'm going to look at the rest of my wide receiver room. If I've got Keenan Allen, I'm going to go Marquise Brown. If I've got, um, you know, if I've got C.D. Lamb, um, I picks three, seven or three, eight um, or later, I'm going to be more likely to go with the Jarvis Landry because I want my teams to be able to win. People forget, especially in season long, you have to win every week, you know, to get to the end, to get to the chance of the big prize. So, um, that's how I look at that. As far as um, the, the next thing, you know, I want to talk about is roster construction. All right. Since, you know, I'm more of a best ball guy and, 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 and lock so rock solid roster construction is much more important in a best ball draft because you can't make changes later. <clears throat> in season long, how do you look? I mean, I've kind of on the FFPC heard from Nelson Souza. I got to give him credit. He talked about, you know, don't take more than five or six wide receivers, but get good ones and then take a lot of shots, especially early at that running back who could give you that seasonal upside. Um, but what, what's your favorite way to play season long as far as roster construction and how important is it to you in best ball? Yeah, I, I, I think to simplify fantasy football, period, right? You're, you're, you're trying to hit on the players that you're going to draft between, in my opinion, rounds 5 through 12 
that all of a sudden they're going to be worth four to five rounds more the next year. Right. right? And, and finding those players. And so as much as we may talk about these strategies of, of just draft receivers in this whole range, draft running backs in this whole range, draft or avoid running backs in this range, there's context to every one of those situations. And it still comes back to targeting the right players. And you won't be right on all of your players, but I'm less likely. Um, uh, and I know a lot of people that do this and do it really good. So like Chad Schroeder talks about the diversification meth- method, and he's one of the best season long players in the world. You know, so I, I value Chad's, um, you know, his, his influence, you know, on me, I do draft teams for value and, grab guys when they slide. I do all those things, but I also have a group of players every year that I've got really strong convictions around um, that I typically, f- I focus a lot, a lot on, you know, from round six on, you know, earlier on in the drafts, I'm trying to gain more of a balanced approach across a lot of players that I like similarly um, that I think, uh, especially first across the first two rounds, um, I'll typically have a few players that I'm avoiding a few players. I like a little more than everywhere else, but mostly I'm trying to be balanced. If I'm going to build 30 teams, I don't want to own one player in those first two rounds, 70 or 80% of the time, right? I want to balance that out. But what I'm honestly looking for, what are the right ADPs where um, risk, right? Upside converge at the right spot where now I'm willing to spend the pick, you know, on that player. I keep using CD lamb who I absolutely love. Like I was pumping CD lamb last year as the guy to own over Gallup you know, like from the beginning and a lot of it was great until that got hurt, but I'm also willing to adapt. Now we're talking about CD lamb. I mean, everybody's looking at it like, Oh, well he can be Justin Jefferson this year. I mean, well, Jeff Justin Jefferson played in a two, a two man offense in the passing game. Right. So it was him and Thielen. He also was drafted in round 12 and, <clears throat> you know, um, and, and so that upside had a chance to come out. Right, exactly. And so with Lamb, with where you're drafting and how much more upside are you hoping for? Like I keep seeing people say he could break the league. Do you, do you really know what break the league means? You, he needs to score like 340 points, 330 points where you're drafting in there, you know, because basically you're drafting a player that you think should score about 260 to 270. And I think that's already a little above. That's already above where I've got CD for his need. And so just because you think a player has upside, you have to think about how much upside do they have? And I think people are getting too comfortable betting on just the tails, right. Of what could happen. And the problem is they only apply it to certain players. There's a tail end of each side of a probability matrix or probability curve, bell curve of upside and downside. There's, there's one of those curves for Allen Robinson as well, right? People act like it doesn't exist. They're like, no, it only exists for CD land. So I'm going to pass on Allen Robinson. We know what he is. Do we really know what Allen Robinson is? He's never had a great quarterback. Nope. He still he has an upside version. He hasn't even had become, a decent quarterback. Exactly, which matters because you don't have to have a great quarterback to succeed in fantasy, but you have to you can't have a terrible one. And he's basically been saddled with bad to terrible quarterbacks his whole career. And so the way I think about you know approaching you know roster construction is really from that. And my first two rounds, I'm looking for players that I feel really strongly about, Todd. I'm not looking to take on a ton of risk with those players because I don't feel that I have to. Volume is key, right? When volume meets efficiency, that's where you get, you know, your studs. And I think there's plenty of options in the first two rounds this year where there's players you can feel really good about their volume and you can feel really good about what their efficiency is going to look like. So why do I need to take on the additional risk or headache? You get into the third round, to your point earlier, 
that starts to devolve a little bit. But I still think there's plenty of safe bets on volume in the third round. And I'm going to lean into those over the pure efficiency plays. Then I think in the fourth and fifth round, especially at receiver, you're starting to get into efficiency again, right? You got Chris Godwin, you got Mike Evans, you got guys that are on teams that have three really good receivers, right? So it's going to be spread around, but the offense could explode. It's funny how many people talk about the It already Cowboys. did. Yeah, it it's already funny. did. The last eight games, they averaged over 30 points. And exactly. uh, you, you reminded me on the last pod, I it's so easy to pass those guys, right? Because we think again, you think and you think you know who they are. And you know, who they are is good enough to be drafted where they are. Exactly. Yeah. Like and so I mean, I love those I love uh, those players in those rounds. I love Tyler Lockett in the fourth round. Are you kidding me? And we'll, we can talk about their offense later. Cause I know you got a questions about some overrated, underrated teams and we'll talk about the Seahawks, but yeah. to your point, what people forget is once Brady had his three healthy receivers, he fully understood the offense he was playing in. He averaged 305.5 yards per game, 8.1 yards per attempt over that last eight, which, which extrapolates to basically 4,900 yards passing. Now we're adding another game to the season. Um, so, I mean, he passed 68.2% of the time. Um, that's plus 8% versus their first eight games. And people may say, well, was it, well, maybe they just trailed more. Yes, they did trail more, but here's the thing why you got to go into the details. They threw more in every scenario. They threw 67% of the time when the score was in, it was within three points. That was plus 2% versus the first eight games. They passed 60% of the time when they were in a lead. That's plus 3% versus the first eight games. And they, they passed 76% of the time when they were trailing by four points or more, that's plus 5% versus the first eight games. They clearly became a pass dominant offense in every single way over the second half of the season. And I think Brady's going to be out to prove to everybody like he's still the best. I mean, I have Tom Brady in my top eight quarterbacks this year. And if I do, that means I can easily take Godwin. I can easily take Mike Evans and I can, you know, I can easily take Antonio Brown. He's the easy one, right? Cause Antonio Brown is going, you know, three rounds. He, four he rounds was, easy, than he the was other even easier when he was 10th to 12th round, uh, yeah. 13th, 14th round early. I was scooping up so much of him. Uh, people don't realize he was wide receiver 23 last year in points per game. Yeah. So, I mean, those are the things, I mean, I hope I answered the question the right you, way. You, you did. But you also got into some other really good stuff that I want to address. Um, and and it, it's, it's the difference between – it's very important, actually. It's the difference – your style and my style are different based on how we play the game, right? I'm playing hundreds of best balls. So the thing that I fear the most is an injury, right? Um, last two years, I was going through a divorce. I ended up with – too much of certain people, and of course, they were the wrong ones. Um, my best two years of best ball, I didn't own one player over 23%, right? So when you look at C.D. Lamb going a little too early, if you're only doing 30 teams, you might not get a C.D. Lamb share, right? Because you need each one of those 30 teams to be the best team it can be. When I'm drafting 100 teams, I have to consider what if Amari Cooper or Gallup goes down yeah. And, yeah. and I have zero C.D. Lamb. Now, thankfully, I got some when he was going in the fourth round, and I got more when he was late third round. And even late third round, I, was, I, I felt like I was right at that edge of where I was getting over my – I was getting Wiley Coyote a little bit. Um, 
but um, but you're right, and I and I I actually am going to own CD Lamb shares this year. I'm just not going to force it every time. You know what I mean? And, and that's the balance yeah. I try to bring. I'm going to own so far McLaurin and Allen Robinson. It's hard for me to take CD Lamb over those guys, but I own enough of those two players now, and I don't own much CD. So I'm gonna add I'm gonna add CD in where I can, but I do keep all my teams up where I can see. So for example, if I get to make this really cool start, uh, let's say I start off with you know Zeke or you name it, one of the top six backs. You could say Kamara, whoever, and all of a sudden because of this news around Jonathan Taylor and Barkley, they happen to slide all the way back down to me at pick eight. Let's say I had pick four, and now I take Barkley. And I've got a stack that wasn't easy to make, you know, a week, a week and a half ago. And oh, by the way, the new cycle is going to change again. And Barkley's price will probably go up or it's going to fall from where it's at today. We can talk about that more later. But on that team, I'm going to look at that and I'm going to say, I'm not taking CD Lamb. I'm going to take the guy I actually like more. I'm going to take Terry McLaurin or I'm going to take Allen Robinson. But if I look at a team where I'm like, okay, I've got that two player start twice and I've got McLaurin and I've got Robinson on both of them. I'm going to take CD Lamb on this team. That that's the way I I look at it. And so again, being prepared and thinking about it in a draft, that's a lot to do, especially on underdog where you got 30 seconds for a pick. You know, so you just you got to be hyper organized and be able to quickly see that information of what your different stacks look like and how you can you can make that that you know decision quickly. You know, right there on the spot. One thing I would love to see you. Um, I, this is going to take a little explaining. But maybe, you know, if you like it, one day you can put a number to it. Uh, but first, I want to talk about my other big mistake of the last two years. And it came from a place where I think I was right. Michael Thomas and Kamara, both years were first round picks. I found it hard to believe that they both could pay off that first round value based on them both being there. So I was under significantly on both. And each year, one of them got hurt. And they became the key to the fantasy season. So we do have to, and that's a mistake I don't want to make again going forward is by mixing in those, you know, well, you know, all right, well, this draft I'm drafting as if someone's going to get hurt, you know, but because, but nine other ones I'm not. And you kind of just said the same thing. Um, The other thing is you've talked about tiers and it's something I've preached for years being a tier drafter. Because let's say you've got a 30-point difference in your projection between player A and player B. That's one or two points a week. That pales in comparison to injury risk, right? Mm -hmm. So if you end up with 40% of player A because you have him 30 points ahead of player B and player A gets hurt and player B just hits his projection – especially early in a draft where you can see two to 4% win rates in the first round with guys who get hurt. Um, it is a, um, it's a big deal. So what I would love to see someone do some research on is the percentage chance in each round of someone having a season ending injury and how it should affect projections and how we look at exposure in early picks. Yeah, I think that's actually a great idea. And as uh, I think we've got so much more content in the industry nowadays around injury risk, recovery times. I mean, the the needle has moved a really good bit, right, on that type of yep. information over the last five years. 
it's funny because I work in a healthcare company and I was just having this conversation yesterday um, with an individual who works in, um, you know, an area of our company that's uh, really around forecasting um, analytics. And she called me when she heard about my new role that I was going to be taking. And she's a big uh, football fan. The first thing she came to me with just was really around what you were just saying. She's like, you guys need to do something around injuries. And, you know, these she's like, because we've got all this great data around recovery times and all that kind of stuff. That's a lot broader than just athletes. We have tons of humans, right, that go through these different type of procedures. Now, they're not always athletes, but a lot of them are. There are enough of them that that are athletes and they are training and they're doing, you know, but it's not just football. Um, So, like. I was, it's kind of funny that you brought that up because that was like her first piece of advice uh, was really around, around that. And that's in an area she's passionate about because she's a, she's a former, uh, you know, healthcare, you know, person, she's still in healthcare, but you know, she's a clinician. But um, yeah, I think that would be something really interesting, you know, to say, I think right now, if you just kind of did a rule of thumb of it, like I'm, I'm going to play it maybe injury risk, like around, um, and Adam Harstead has actually done some really good research on injuries and how much is the risk of re-injury versus normal injury? How much does it really go up? All those sort of things. He's done some really good um, analysis on that. So you could check out what he has, but I'm with the way I think about it is probably 80% of the time I'm drafting as if an injury won't occur. I probably need to allow some 20%. And again, back to roster construction and how I've built teams before, and then welcoming in, you know, moving one player over another to A, reduce risk of my exposure to player A, but B, also to pick up upside of my exposure uh, to the other player who could also have someone get injured on their team, i.e. Michael Gallup, Amari Cooper. If Amari Cooper or Michael Gallup gets hurt, CeeDee Lamb could be a top five receiver. He could be a top three. Like, that's definitely in the range of outcomes. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the way I draft, Dwayne, is like I don't believe in injury prone when it comes to major injuries. I feel like yeah. we've seen enough examples. Keenan Allen was supposed to be injury prone. Matthew Stafford, um, you know, major injuries don't concern me other than the year. Like Barkley, my big, you know, I wasn't drafting any Barkley because I've just had such bad luck with people coming off of not if it was just an ACL, it would be one thing. Joe Burrow was another one. These guys who have two or three ligaments seem to way more often have complications. And I don't want that in my first round pick. And um, someone taught me once that by fading a guy, the only thing you have to worry about is if he crushes you to the point uh, you know, in other words, like the year Christian McCaffrey scored, you know, 400 points. If you didn't have him, you, you were dead. But most guys aren't going to crush enough to to kill you. And I felt that way about Barkley. Yeah. But I do worry about guys who always seem to be get dinged up. The Julio Jones, those big receivers. When you're putting a lot of draft capital into people who – like Chris Carson's a guy that I love. I know you love him. You got me on him with your Seahawks episode. I I realized I was fading the Seahawks too much, um, and him in, in in particular. I had a ton of penny, um, but Chris Carson just he's a violent runner. He just yes. always seems to get dinged up. Those guys I will be hesitant on. Your thoughts on that? 
I do agree. And, and, and I think, you know, I can't exactly quantify it for the listeners, but I agree that it's the, it's the things that just add up every year, right? Like Deshaun Jackson's a great example. You know, I mean, Deshaun Jackson, when he's on the field can still be a really good player. And I know he's not a good example because it's not like his ADP is high. Right. But, you know, back in the day, but there were years where he did. Yeah. yeah. And so, he and he can still play if you're looking at training camp like he's turning around Jalen Ramsey the guy still got it but like he'll probably have some sort of abdominal pull in week one and then and the problem with those especially in season long versus best ball the problem with those players is people forget it's not just about the weeks where they receive the their out designation that's actually what you're hoping for just tell me he's not playing the worst is when you're trying to figure out oh crap he's active but is he gonna do anything who do I put in over him you know, and I've made that decision wrong a million times to where I put in the player uh, because he's supposed to play. He was a decoy the whole game. The next time I'm like, I'm not doing that. And he's actually really healthy. And he goes off for eight catches and 130 <laughs> yards and two touchdowns. And it's maddening. You know, it's just extra stress on your life of having to figure out how to fill your lineup in each week. Um, so what I've tended to do on that here lately is if they don't at least get a full practice in by Thursday, unless my roster is really, really weak, I'm just trying to fade the player. Right. Um, don't, I don't care about Friday. Fridays are typically a walkthrough. Saturdays are typically walkthrough. I, that doesn't tell me a lot. If, if they don't get a full or at least, you know, I may take a limited practice on Thursday. If it's a veteran player that I'm pre, I can trust the beat rider knowing that, Hey, he's, he's actually okay. He normally gets a veteran day rest anyway. So normally he'd get a limited on Wednesday and then he'd get a full on Thursday because he got slightly dinged. He didn't practice Wednesday. He got a limited on Thursday, but it, but he's, he's going to be okay. Then I might, I might swing, um, you know, the pendulum back to starting the player, but overall that's kind of the rule of thumb that I put in, in general. And then again, though, you have to figure out not all teams are equal the way they report their injuries and what limited versus, you know, partial versus full practices mean, um, I think there's a lot left to be, uh, you know, defined. Each team is they they could be pretty loose with it. The NFL, yes, tries to monitor it, um, but it's not something where you know every team reports it the same way. So it's not perfect. Yeah, I'm big on tiebreakers when I draft, right? Like I, for especially for best ball, I've got like eight different tiebreakers. But for season long, I definitely have a tiebreaker of. Is this the type of guy I, I, I'm going to feel comfortable starting, right? And if he's being drafted right next to someone who I would feel comfortable drafting, then that makes it easy for me. And I like, especially when you live draft, I like to have these tiebreakers because I can quickly go through them in my mind and make a decision in 30 seconds or a minute. Um, as far as you go, um you know, with tier drafting, um, any thoughts uh, about how you use your tiers when you're on the clock? Yeah. And I actually have tiers within my tiers. So, right. I, I, I will have, you know, my tier one wide receivers. You're they're, literally they're, crying. Yeah. They're, they're tears. They're, yeah. I'm crying tears. There are wide receiver ones are, are a little more simple, but when I get to my wide receiver twos, I do break them down into upside versus you know probably more the rock solid type player um and then i do that in tier three i do that in tier four and again it's as i'm building out my roster i want to look i'm not necessarily wanting all upside but i don't want all four either and right. so that that's very similar I, to the dfs 
Yeah. And that, that's, that's, how I, that's how I handle it. Um, but I do have hard tier breaks. So for example, this year I've got McLaurin and Allen Robinson and I have a hard tier break before I get to CD lamb. But I look at CD lamb is really being very similar to Mike Evans, to Chris Godwin. Let's think back to a year ago. What did everyone think about Chris Godwin? Everyone oh, loved Chris Godwin. You I faded Chris him Godwin. in the second round. I did too. But what, what was the narrative? The narrative was you should draft Chris Godwin over DeAndre Hopkins because he's younger and he has more upside. And Hopkins got traded. Yeah. You know, and yeah. wide receivers who get traded. Yeah. God, see, that stuff drives me nuts. It's like context <laughs> matters. That's why my, I'm at Dwayne McFarlane. But like what you'll see, like if on Twitter, if you search, my, you know, my handle um, is actually, you know, that I put above that is context matters because these situations, you know, they're all very different. You have to take in all the information. And so, but now no one wants Chris Godwin. He's washed. Right. <laughs> and so that's a perfect buy opportunity to me. Chris Godwin and CD lamb actually should be closer than where they're being drafted because they're, they're, they're a mean outcome or median. You can even use median if you want. Um, they're going to be close together. Right. And there is a path to Chris Godwin also having a monster season. Cause you, what is what most people say about CD lamb is not that they're depending on, Cooper getting hurt. You will hear that. More of them are saying his efficiency could be through the roof. So could Chris Godwin's. It's a freaking awesome offense. So could Mike Evans. And so I'm really getting a player that if 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 80% of your thought on the way C.D. Lamb reaches upside is on efficiency and you're not depending on an injury, then I can make the same argument for Mike Evans. I can make the same argument for Chris Godwin. And I know what except, people are going to say. Except you don't have to make the argument because they're not on the clock together. And, right. and that's your point. And that's your point exactly. that they're not that you don't have to reach for CD Lamb because you can get a guy just like it around later and get someone you trust more when you're picking CD Lamb, and 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 all that is like throwing money in your boat when you're drafting. To me, um, and that's how I used to look at dynasty when I would do dynasty trades. I wouldn't. People would say, "Well, why did you get a, another wide receiver? You have enough. You have too many wide receivers." I said, I got a good trade. I added value to my team. I can now make another trade for a running back. But, you know, someone just offered me uh, 50 cents for a quarter. I'm going to take it. And then I'll worry about how to get the value later. It's the same thing with uh, what you were talking about with Chad and taking value when it drops um, with volume. It's, it's just what you're doing is you're rising all your boats. I'll right? give you a and great you example have... of this, the way it worked for me last year. So last year, one of my first teams, I drafted Football Guys Players Championship. Um, my first round pick was Derrick Henry. I was picking out of the five hole. Coming back uh, to me in the second round, I took DeAndre Hopkins, which I did a decent amount last year, probably around 30% of my teams had Hopkins. Then coming back around to me um, in the third round, I can't even remember now, it was another, oh, it was Terry McLaurin. Or no, sorry, Terry McLaurin was my fourth round. Now this year, Terry McLaurin's a third round. Um, no, 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 it was Terry McLaurin. Sorry, it was Terry McLaurin. Well, McLaurin, because it, McLaurin had a fourth, fifth round ADP for a lot of last year. Yeah, so I have to, I have to pull. Hang on, I have to pull my. It's team. okay. I have to pull my team. The bottom line is, well, why, John, why Jonathan Taylor? Jonathan Taylor slipped to me in the fourth round, where people were pretty much taking him at the end of the second and in the middle of the third, and I thought his price tag had gotten too high. 
So I took Taylor in the fourth round. So now I had Henry and I had Jonathan Taylor, but I didn't have to spend my third round pick, right? Um, on Oh, you know who my third round pick was? It was DJ Moore, who didn't necessarily do great. But my fourth round pick was uh, Jonathan Taylor. My fifth round pick was Terry McLaurin. Dude. My sixth round pick was Stefan Diggs, who I thought as much as I was down on Josh Allen, not as a fantasy player, but as an NFL quarterback, I thought that's still too low for a player of Diggs' talent. I thought Diggs had elite wide receiver traits, could get open against every area of the, every area of the field, every type of coverage, whether it's zone, press, press man. He could beat it all. He had shown that consistently through Matt Harmon's work. And so I wanted to own Diggs, and I owned him several times in the six. And then my quarterback that hurts last me so year. Bad. It hurts <laughs> me so bad because I loved him there, and I, I got talked off it. And that's and and I can live with picking the wrong player that I like. Mm-hmm. What I, what eats me up is when I really like someone and I get off them because and then they hit. I do the same thing. It, it, it that drives me crazy. But uh, you mentioned Jonathan Taylor. He's the guy that you talked a lot about and got heat for recently. Um, and and I feel like everyone's overreacting to this Wentz and Quentin Nelson news. Um, he's now, I got him at 211 the other day. So you, you, you finally, you know, I had been mixing him in a, about even weight, 10% at ADP. Sometimes he would drop to 11 or 10. I felt like he was decent value there. Um, now I'm getting him at the end of the second round and it's just a beautiful thing. I'm now officially drafting Jonathan Taylor. So this goes back to a theme that you'll hear me talk about a lot. By the new cycles. So for if you're going to draft early and you're going to draft a lot of teams, then you embrace the uncertainty of the new cycle. That's what that's the edge you're gaining, in my opinion, by drafting at all different times of the preseason. So, for example, Aaron Rodgers, we knew how much money he could potentially be owed and how much even if the Packers wanted to do clawbacks, all that sort of a stuff. We knew he basically was positioning to want to be traded, but there was just too much money on the line and he was positioning and he did get what he wanted. He was able to negotiate that he's got an out basically, right? right. Going to come play this season, going to try to win a Super Bowl, but I can, I, I have an out. I got my ticket out. He got what he, we wanted, but I was really confident Aaron Rodgers was going to play this year. So I was buying Devontae Adams and Aaron Jones in the second round the whole time. Now, look, Devontae Adams can be a mid-second, a first-round pick now. Aaron Jones is a late first to an early second. So I was buying that news. Now it's time to buy Jonathan Taylor and Saquon Barkley news. Saquon Barkley's been sliding into the mid-second to the late-second at times. I'm buying that all day long. I will, too. I will, too. Same thing on Jonathan Taylor. Um, They've fallen too far because guess what? Most likely there will be a new news tidbit in two weeks that everyone now overreacts to again, and they're both going to go back up the board. Right, it could go the other way, but most likely for Jonathan Taylor, he's going to bounce one, back one out big run in preseason, one exactly. big run in preseason. Exactly. Um, and Quentin Nelson, you know, look, they still have a good line, even without Quentin Nelson. Um, they've got a great uh, coach, great scheme. I kept, kicked myself on uh, again on the Packers because I was telling everyone that Rodgers was going to play, and I still didn't buy enough on the dip. I had part. I have partners for best ball, and 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 some of them definitely did not want to do it. So, but I bought into it too. Um, but your point is very well taken, 
And it's one of the reasons why I like listening to the FF Hustle, where Dwayne and Brian Drake do a fabulous job laying all these things out on a weekly basis. I, I, I call it like a checkpoint. Uh, it's a great checkpoint for me to be able to take my thoughts and compare it against real numbers and someone who is looking at things from a rational perspective. Um, I, I advise everyone heavily to look at that. Um, I do want to um, talk a, a little bit about your, we talked about your favorite uh, teams that you wanted. Let, let's talk about the Seattle and some of the teams that you feel are being underdrafted because we got about 10 minutes left. Sure. Yeah, I think the Seahawks are number one, and a lot of it ties into Shane Waldron. And so if you look at it last year, you hear the the news of, you know, uh, Schottenheimer and Carroll having philosophical differences, right? And really what that was around is Pete Carroll does want to run the ball more. So I think Shane Waldron actually brings the perfect balance because what Waldron is going to bring is an increased pace, right? An increased tempo. You know, he's been running behind, you know, with Sean McVay offenses that get into the top five and plays every year, but are more balanced, you know, 55% fat pass, 45% run. That's, you know, probably 60% drop back, but some percent of those turn into scrambles, some turn into sacks. So it's really more of a, I would call it a run to pass balance type offense. And so while you're going to trade off those percentages changing, you're going to get more plays. But the other thing I think you're going to get from this offense is you're going to get greater efficiency because this offense is not going to let the too high safety look drag down everything they're doing. You also saw them go grab. A, a, and I know a lot of people don't like Eskridge because, you know, he's an older receiver. and I know he's been trying to get up and going in camp. He's had some injuries, but they also added Gerald Everett. And essentially something I like to talk about, you know, that I've heard from, former NFL scouts, college scouts, they talk about the rule of three. You've got to have three passing weapons that the defense has to respect. And if you do, you can pretty much break down every sort of coverage in the NFL. Cover two, cover four match, cover three. A lot of, a lot of cool, interesting, blended concepts that are out there today. But essentially, if you've got three talented options or two real talented options and then two secondary options, right, so a four total, which you can kind of together count those other two as being your third, that really gives you an opportunity to break down any kind of defense. And I think that's where the Seahawks ran into, tr into trouble last year is everything was based around Metcalf and everything was based around Lockett. And they just had the two high safety. And, and, and deep passes. I think yeah. this new offense getting the ball out quicker is going to be very good for Tyler Lockett, who runs such good patterns. Right. Because what that's going to do is the two high look of safeties is what really killed the Seahawks last year. And so now you're going to have an offense that's going to attack all the different layers of the field. Um, and so DK is obviously being drafted at the end of the second round. So he, he he's already priced up about where you know, he needs to be. But the guy that's got, the guys that are going too low are Tyler Lockett, Chris Carson, um, Gerald Everett. All of those guys have – even Dwayne Eskridge at the end of a draft in best ball, right? And those Russ. all have. And, oh, Russ, yeah, is, Russell Russ is my most – he, he's going at that end of that tier. Um, and to me, that's always been the best way to attack a, a quarterback is to take the lowest guy in that upper tier. Agree. I've got him in the same tier with Dak. Um, and I think he's right there. I even put that out, you know, a couple of weeks back on Twitter that Russell Wilson's going to finish way closer to Dak than what people think. Dak has the upside of being in an offense that could literally pass all the time. So I think he does have a higher ceiling um, as long as his shoulder, you know, is okay. But I think Russ, ultimately, if I'm looking at the, the, 
the average range of outcomes, Russ has a really good shot at being right there with Dak. And I think there's there's some upside sitting there with Russ that people may not be thinking about because it's not like the Seahawks defense is that great. Like they could end up in more shootouts where they ha- where they're forced to pass more. Right. So there's a lot of different ways that that could work for Russ. But I I, I see this as being an offense that I, I want to own as much as I can, because I think, you know, to your point, you know, they're just they're drastically um, underrated. And if I look at, you know, just real quick, I wanted to pull something up to share, you know, with the listeners. Um, yeah, well, look, while you while at, you look that up, yeah, I want to say that they're also in a division with some great offenses. Um, exactly. So you're going to get two games against uh, the Rams, two games against the Cardinals, two games against the Niners. The, the Niners. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of lots of opportunity for shootouts. So and, if you look and at warm if you, weather at the end of the year. Yep. If you and if you look at the place per game, um, Waldron last year um, with the Rams, 68 plays per game. Um, it was 63 plays per game with Schottenheimer. Uh, last year the year before Waldron and McVeigh was at 65.9 plays per game this is excluding overtime this is only looking at uh, just four quarters of football whereas you had Schottenheimer at 63.6 and then before that 66.3 versus 63 so you're talking three to five more plays per game when you add that up over a 17 game season that's basically two games two full games worth of additional plays being ran by this offense from what we saw last year. So even though they're going to be more balanced, which will keep Pete Carroll happy because that was his philosophical difference, but it's going to keep Russ happy as well. Cause he's still going to get to throw the ball plenty, even though they're going to be technically more balanced on a spreadsheet by percentage of run to pass, there's still going to be more plays being ran. So it, Shane Waldron was actually the perfect hire for what Pete Carroll needed to feel good about and what Russ needed to feel good about. And then now you added the two weapons with Gerald Everett, and you added in, you know, Dwayne Eskridge. They've got some other guys as well. But I think uh, all the Seahawks, back to our original point, because of those things, they're being undervalued, in my opinion. So Russ is going to be able to cook. He's just going to be cooking more healthy. Yeah, um, it's, it's going to be more efficient, and he's going to have more plays. But it's going to – this offense is going is not going to be as one-dimensional as what it was, was last year, which which opens up more doors for Russ. All right, I've got one more big question I want to get to, and we're running out of time. So if you could just list, without going into it, three or four more offenses that you feel are being underdrafted. Yeah, we talked a little bit but I, I, about it, but I think overall the Bucks receivers are being underdrafted. Tom Brady's being underdrafted, so that would be a team. Um, I would also say that the Jets are potentially being underdrafted. Lots of new moving parts going on with the Jets, so – it's not like I'm saying reach for these guys, but for where they're going. And a lot of it's about the scheme that's being installed. It's Michael Floor. These schemes that set up the wide zone, either using three wide receivers or two with a good tight end like a Kittle. Obviously, it's probably going to be the you know the former with this team. I guess as 11 personnel will probably be their base set. But I expect this team to add a lot of efficiency, even with a rookie quarterback. So I'm definitely in on Elijah Moore. I'm fine drafting. Um Corey Davis at his ADP. And I'm also fine with drafting Michael Carter as long. Now he's starting to creep up, but Michael Carter, when I was getting him in the seventh round, loved it. Sixth round, a little more iffy, but it depends on roster construction. Yeah. I, I, I like Carter in the late sixth and seventh. Um, but I like him as a third running back. I don't like him right. as a second. Um, so it really depends on my roster construction. Uh, I'll throw out one other late team. 
Um, because I think the Jets, you know, when you're doing best ball, you're looking for two teams to stack. I think it, especially if you take an early quarterback, Zach Wilson um, is a good second quarterback and you can, and you can uh, plan ahead. The other one is the Raiders. I feel like you can get David Carr late, Brian Edwards late, Ruggs late. Um, you, so you don't need Waller to put uh, – and, and no one's drafting Hunter Renfro, and he looks like he's going to be the slot guy, and he's flashed big weeks. So um, I, I'll throw the Raiders out as late. It ties into my last question I want to tell, uh, get your thoughts on, Dwayne, because to me it's, it's on the FFPC. It is really the key to the season, getting this right. Um, I love as most drafters to study results from the past, um, but information is only as good, you know, the result is only as good as the data that you put in. R quarterbacks are going two to three rounds higher than previously. So I love when people uh, tell you to, dra well, draft your first quarterback in the eighth round. Well, the guy you would get in the eighth round is going in the fifth round. So your data is corrupt. Um, I've come up with a couple strategies on, on, on how to deal with that. I want your overall thoughts, but I also want your thought on my number one idea, which is just draft Pat Mahomes, right? So historically, I've never taken that first quarterback because you could get someone almost as good 30 to 40 picks later. But now with five or six quarterbacks coming off in the next 15 or 20 picks, I found myself at 1.15% Mahomes, and, um, you know, he, he, as good as he – he had a 10.7% win percentage last year going in the second round, uh, I mean the early third. Now he's going – you can get him plenty in the fourth round, and all those other guys who were going two to three rounds later are going uh, much closer to him. Uh, your thoughts on my strategy, and do you have any other ideas on how to handle quarterback um, with this uh, sea change? Well, I can never argue really against Pat Mahomes, <laughs> but I, I'm taking a little bit of a different approach. Um, you know, my, in a nutshell, my quarterback plan this year is Russ Wilson when he makes it to the eighth. I'm willing to slide Dak in right now because you're buying the shoulder news and you can get him in the right. seventh sometimes in the FFPC. Um, or I'm going with Brady in the 10th or the 11th um, or Jalen or Jalen Hurts because he's fallen now because everybody's so worried right around the about Watson the trade. Yeah, the trade potential. And if you want to throw in Fields or Lance, you know, in 12 in rounds between 12 and 15, I'm not forcing those guys, though. I, I you don't always get them because there's a lot of times again, this upside is upside, you know, blocking points are really huge this year. So I've seen it vary in drafts. I've had drafts where Fields or Lance fall to 13 or 14. I can add them as my QB2. Um, but I've seen drafts where I've seen Trey Lance get drafted in the 10th round because people are – the other thing people are trying to do is make their stacks, right? They're taking Kittle and they take Iuke and then they're coming back with Trey Lance. I do like Trey Lance better in redraft than I do in best ball just because you can adapt just in case, right? He's not, he's not the – the starter for some period of time to, to begin the season. So that's really my strategy. It's pretty straightforward. Russ in the eighth, I'm either getting Jalen Hurts or Tom Brady in that, you know, 10th to 12th round range. And then I'm willing to take one of the young guys whenever they fall a little bit more. I'm also okay to taking a swing on Tua or some of the other players. Um, 
that are going late that I think have some upside and, and you can have some stacks. But I, I quite often, to be honest, Todd, I only draft one quarterback in this format for the most part. In the FPG. Yeah, yeah I, I broke my rule yesterday. Uh, look at team three. That's my team from yesterday. Let me let me broaden my yeah. Okay. So you got Kamara, come back with Edwards Alaire, Keenan Allen, Lockett, Beckham, Fant, Juju. I, I mean, I like that. That's solid. And then Irv Smith as your tight end too. This is tight end premium. And then okay, I see. Yeah. Jalen Hurts and Trey Lance. And I think that's a great, you know, that's a combo, right? Of of two upside quarterbacks. If you're gonna take two that you have unknowns about, I think that's how I would do it. That's when I would break my rule. Typically when I only draft one is when I land a Russ Wilson or I land a Tom Brady, or if I draft Mahomes, I'm not drafting a second quarterback period. I'm just not doing it. Um, now this is in redraft because I have an opportunity, right? If something does happen to Mahomes, Yeah. That was an FPG. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, I like that. All right. Well, I could talk to you probably for another five hours, uh, <laughs> but I don't know that everyone would want to hear that. And you might call the police that there is a, hostage situation ongoing. I really appreciate that you took the time to come on the podcast. Um, I love the FF Hustle. I think everyone should check it out. I think you'll love it for the same reasons that I do. Dwayne is a tremendous sounding board. He um, is going to be full-time at Pro Football Focus. Now I'm going to have to probably get a membership over there to add to my other memberships. So um, while I love you, Dwayne, I now hate you. Um, any last thoughts, Dwayne? Um, because, you know, context matters. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. I think that's like the biggest thing with the way I approach the analysis, you know, is you really just want to look at all the facets uh, and you do want to listen to other smart people and let them challenge the way you're thinking. But be careful. Don't let. And I think you actually had a question on your sheet. You know, I did. We didn't, get, we didn't to get, it. get to. But around the echo chamber. But feel free to answer it. Yeah, no, I never, I never allow the echo chamber to force me into anything. I just don't. Um, now, ADP really is, um, you know, it's an evaluation of the market. And overall, it can be a pretty efficient, you know, tool. But there's certain things I just don't let myself get pushed into. And a lot of this ties back to what we talked around news cycles. If you draft enough, you get to take advantage of different news cycles, right? There, there could be something very easily next week. As soon as we find out Amari Cooper's starting, right, and he's playing and he's back practicing, we could see C.D. Land fall four or five picks. And now all of a sudden I'm getting to pick him and I didn't have to reach. I'm taking him in the range that I'm comfortable with. So just be willing to don't don't let the echo chamber push you around. Be willing to listen. What you don't want to overreact to is camp hype. The things I do listen for is which which running backs are getting which roles. Who's out there with a two minute offense? Who's That's something there? else I wanted to cover in your in, in uh, that I love in your process. Yeah. So here's the construction of a running back in my mind. Obviously, there's talent. We all know there's talent, but then that has to meet opportunity. And especially when you're looking at young running backs, you have to think through these things. Who is getting the two-minute offense? And they don't even have to be a good blocker because they're typically out in a route. Okay. Who's the long down and distance back? It could be the same as the two-minute offense back, but that back typically needs to be able to block because long down and distance is third or fourth down and seven-plus yards to go. Typically, the job is to block long enough to give the quarterback the chance to throw past the sticks to get a first down. If, if there's nobody blitzing, 
then it's more like that check and release kind of route, but it's not the optimal pass to make because now the back still got to get five more yards to get the first down. So long down and distance, two minute, those are your passing. That's really where your passing comes in. Then who are your short down and distance specialists? So when you got third and fourth down and one or two yards to go, who is that person? And that's also typically the back they're going to give the ball to inside the five. So you're starting to construct your running back based on the value of each one of these scenarios. Being the two-minute back is a lot of value. A lot of points get scored being in the two-minute offense and the dump-down passes that you get. You guys have all seen it where you're leading your opponent and all of a sudden you look over there and they've got like James White in the lineup and you're like, what the hell? Like, how am I down by seven points now? It's because they're running the two-minute offense for the last five minutes of the game and James White gets six catches during that period of just five minutes. So the two-minute offense is worth more that's a DeAndre. That's a DeAndre Swift tweet. There you go. You know, there you go. You know, I mean, peop, that team's going to be terrible. People are like Jamal Williams. Jamal Williams. I'm like, if they're down two touchdowns, they're, they're not going to want to dump it off to Jamal Williams. They're going to want Swift. Swift can catch just as good, if not better. Yeah. Um, I love. I love Swift this year. Yeah, I like Swift too, um, and he's a guy that I'm fine taking in the third. I know a lot of people have started deciding to fade him, and I do like Jamal Williams, and I think he's going to get more work than what a lot of people are thinking, but I still think there's plenty of room for Swift to hit his price on ADP. So, again, where I'm kind of going with this is you got to understand, like, the anatomy of a player. Like, how do they right. get their points? We know there's talent. We know there's efficiency. We know there's the surrounding things, but – what I've really dug into and what's been the beauty of, of getting to partner with Pro Football Focus is all this back-end data that you can't really get in other places because they chart everything and starting to understand, okay, what am I looking for to hear out of camp? What actually matters versus I could really care less about the puff piece around Terry McLaurin spending the offseason with, with uh, Doug Baldwin. I, I think it's or the, nice. Or the big catch. Nice. Yeah. Look at or, that or catch. C.D. Lamb with one finger. Who cares? That stuff does not matter. You do want to hear there are there is a drum beat as you hear. I love Sigmund Bloom. He says, you know, you listen for that consistent drum I love that right, or, the, or, the, or the breadcrumbs. You you heard it in OTAs. Now you're hearing it again in minicamp. Now you're hearing it again in training camp. Then you see it again in the preseason, right? So that you could definitely be looking for a player that's going to break out where you've consistently heard that theme over and over and over, and you give that more you give that more um, weight than just, you know, something you're hearing random around a player. So that's an Elijah Moore tweet. It is. That's Elijah, Elijah Moore. Moore is the consist- I, Elijah Moore, I moved him past Corey Davis uh, on, on my rankings and on my projections this past week because of what you just said. It's just been consistent the whole way. And I know the way their offense works. He's going to get the Debo Samuel looks but he could also get some of the Brandon Ayuk looks like the guy is built to get the close to the line of scrimmage, easy passes, which they're going to want to give a young quarterback and Zach Wilson. You don't have a good tight end there to deal with. So really you got Corey Davis, you got him and it'll probably be Crowder in the slot. Maybe Keelan Cole and Crowder split some time. Elijah could, if Elijah moves inside into the slot, whenever they're in 11, that probably means Keelan Cole's on the outside. If Elijah Moore's on the outside, it probably means Jamison Crowder's on the slot. So, but I think Corey Davis and Elijah Moore are two players that I want plenty of exposure. But to your point, it's a great example. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That consistent drum beat. He always looks like the best player on the field, Elijah Moore. So again, just don't overreact to tidbits. Don't let, you know, the other thing that happens, right, is you have these really cool articles or ideas that come out from really 
um, influential, influential writers in the fantasy community. And a lot of times what they're writing is true, but there's an overreaction to it. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden it just gets human beings are emotional things. Yeah. Things just get and, 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 and being able to do your analysis when everyone else is Wiley coyoteing is, is, is an opportunity. And, and that will, you know, this whole thing that you just described about the different roles, a, that's how you should look at a preseason game, not for how good of a run someone had or whether it was against the first team or the second team, but who was the guy that the, when the, when the quarterback was there, who was the third down back, right? We had questions. Now it looks like it's player A. Um, and the second thing is, you know, you're off Jonathan Taylor. You know, the people screaming for Jonathan Taylor are just like, look at his talent. And you're like, yeah, but Naheem Hines is in here, 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 and here. Um, Naheem Hines was already one of my most owned guys for best ball. Uh, great fourth, uh, great fourth running back. And it's and, a specific uh, situation, right? Naheem Hines is not your average third down or two minute back. He is actually a true mismatch versus linebackers and safeties. So his role's not going to go away. It's not right. like, um, well, we just didn't trust Jonathan Taylor in year one in those situations. And so now he could take that role over. Right. It's more Naheem Hines is actually really damn good at that role. <laughs> um, and so when they want to go fast and they want to put linebackers under pressure and they want to put safeties under pressure with different combinations of routes, Naheem Hines is the better player to have on the field in that situation. Not Dave Meggett for bad. us old guys. Yeah, Dave Meggett. Um, you know, Darren Sproles until his efficiency, you know, his efficiency eventually dropped off. There's a lot of guys like that through history. Um, James White's another one. You know, Kevin look at all the times we've tried to say, man, this the finally a Patriot back's going to take it over. James White does not go away because he's really good at the thing he does. Yeah, and and it's smart coaching. And we didn't even get into smart coaching, not smart <laughs> coaching, how much you could how much that changes your perception and your trust and how it uh it can change uh how you draft. Um, you know, and that again, th that's another DeAndre Swift thing for me because as dumb as a stone as Matt Patricia was as a head coach. Once Swift showed what he did could do, he was like, okay, we got to play this guy more. Like, you know, so people saying that Anthony Lynn's dumb and he's not going to play him. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just, yeah. but and I'll, here's I'll, the thing I'll, you have to look at real quick with Swift. Yeah. Cause we are hitting, see you and I, we no, I, I, I could stay all day. But go ahead. <laughs> Let, we'll hit a couple more quick things. Cause I think you're hitting on some really key stuff. And I think it kind of builds off the concepts we've talked about. And like, so again, back to like teaching and helping people learn, it's like we talked about conceptual things and now it's like tying these things back to actual players and the way you would think about a situation and a projection. I love the DeAndre Swift one, right, that you brought up. Um, and here's what I love about DeAndre Swift. What's the hardest thing for a young back to take over? It's long down and distance and two-minute offense. And he did that at the end of last year. So he's already shown he can do that. Most backs can be a first and second down runner. And so to me, that makes DeAndre Swift. That's what I worried about him coming out. I didn't so, know he could run between the tackles, and he was a revelation doing it. And he showed that, and he did it. And the same thing you can say for Antonio Gibson. He actually came out and did the thing we didn't know he could do, which was handle a decent workload and run between the tackles. Now 
Antonio Gibson, if you are a Gibson truther and you and you're look and I can understand it because we already knew he was a good pass receiver. <laughs> so if he could just take on the two minute offense, even if they want to keep McKissick in on the long down and distance, now all of a sudden, that's how you start to build up the profile of Antonio Gibson. My thought is worst case scenario, he's going to get 60 to 70% of the attempts, which essentially makes him what? Jonathan Taylor on a worse offense behind a worse offensive line. And he's also not as good of a running back. So obviously he should go behind Jonathan Taylor, but his upside in my opinion is higher than Jonathan Taylor's because there is a path, I believe, that he could overtake J.D. McKissick because he was – it's in the role that they actually thought he was already going to be good and at they talked when they about drafted it too. him. They talked exactly. about using him more. Um, uh, another another interesting thing, I got uh, I got uh, on underdog the other day, Josh Jacobs in the seventh round in a half PPR. <laughs> It, so here's what's funny to me. Here's what's funny to me, Todd, about this. People talking about betting on talent. So, but they don't want to take Josh Jacobs. Josh Jacobs is more than proven. He's freaking talented. He I can catch the ball too if they gave him a chance. If they let him. But we know Gruden won't. Won't. Last year, Josh Jacobs was a complete fade for me. And I remember getting roasted for it. Oh, you're dumb. Bet on talent. He's going. And my what I said was look, they re-signed Jalen Richard who they like last this year before they got DeAndre Washington on the field. You know, John Gruden likes to use these two backs. He's only had two seasons ever in his life where he's truly not had some sort of a committee, but now there's an overreaction. Um, if it's almost like, Oh, Josh Jacobs just isn't a good player. And so last year he somehow was a second player from all the same people, by the way, that are saying these things. So now he's not even worth a six round pick. The way I look at Josh Jacobs is what if, Kenyon Drake gets hurt. Now he's only a six round pick. He's a first round draft pick capital who's played great, you know, as far as when he's had his opportunities, you know, he finishes RB eight. Um, I know if you look at the points themselves, that doesn't necessarily mean he was a win for you. You did not want to own him at the end of your first or the beginning of your second round draft last year, because you could have been taking players that far outscored what he did, even though at the end of the season, he ended up being like running back eight in a PPR format. He, he, he ended he's up too with far a seven down. point. He ended up with a 7.8 win percentage at an ADP of 15. Not much has changed. And people, the same people who told you you were an idiot for passing on him last year are telling you that you're an idiot for drafting him in the fifth, sixth round. It's an overreaction, right? And and it's just thinking there's no upside. Again, this is where I get frustrated with ups, upside. More players than we think have a path to upside. And Josh Jacobs does have one. And I don't like betting on injuries to create my upside. But now that you're getting me into the sixth round of a player that is a first round draft capital on his team that is shown to be really talented. Um, you know, you could argue that like over the last couple of years, you know, he's as far as just being a pure runner when he's been healthy, he's probably been one of the top five running backs in the league as far as a pure runner. And now you're getting him at a discount. And, and that's when I like to bake in. What if an injury happened? Because I'm, I'm, I'm not betting on a high probability of it. I'm getting a player in the sixth round I already like. And if that one other thing breaks my way, then all of a sudden Josh Jacobs become he could become a league winner. There's a path to Josh Jacobs becoming a league winner at his current price. And he, get by the way, doesn't even have to hit it for you guys. He could be your RB2, RB3 that late, and you could feel really good about sticking him in your lineup every week, even if he's sharing the backfield with Kenyon Drake. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just amazing to me 
for people who say they play fantasy football. I mean, when I'm sitting there week seven and I've got two guys on by and Josh Jacobs is my third running back and I can stick him in, I'm going to be super happy, right? Um, now, I, I have no problem with him as being a second running back, but the point is that not every pick has to be a home run um, because, you know, uh, this is a great way to end the pot. Those home run hitters also lead the league in strikeouts. Dwayne, it was a pleasure having you on. Um, I, I can't tell you how much fun this was. Thank you all for listening. Go to myffpc.com, sign up. Oh, Dwayne, I, got, I do want to ask you one last question. What's your sure. username over there? Uh, I switch it up because okay. I, don't like the, I, I don't let people know who it is until I'm Smart. done drafting. But whenever all drafts are done, you'll see it. Um, it's DMC, but I do it in a weird way with weird fonts and stuff. But <laughs> it's DMC. So it's, uh, so it's uh, run DMC. Um, or anything close to that that looks like Dwayne. It might be him. He's shadowing you in drafts. Uh, last be afraid. Year, my, be last afraid. Year I, I do the same thing. I don't do it with best ball because, I, I, you know, with tier drafting, you might think you know who I want, but you, you have no idea what I'm really going to want. But when I draft FBGs, a lot of times I go incognito as well. Yeah. Like last year, I used tombstone quotes for all my teams when I drafted them. Then I changed them after. So I usually will have some sort of theme. So that'll leave you guys guessing. If you see some sort of theme, you can wonder if it's me or not. <laughs> I, I, I think you should go with the theme of everything everyone was wrong about last year, right? That they told you you were stupid about. Um, and um, that's going to do it, folks. Thank you very much. And I will see you soon.